<laughs> All right, welcome. What was that for? It's because well, you say ready. Three, so two, and Elvis barks. Yes, he he's well trained. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans! It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. <laughs> Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. So without further ado, let's let's talk about why we're here today. So we've done uh, one already, and we had so much fun with that fireside chat, we decided to do another one. So um, while I mute myself to let the dog out, do you want to tell them about our fireside chats? So this is kind of an, an effort to... Um keep the show fresh from stagnating. We're uh, bringing more discussion panels, book reviews, movies, things that don't fit into our typical panel format or of a podcast is quite as well. It's a little bit more uh, low key, as you'll probably know. Uh, I hope you'll know. But we have Terry Mixon back, who was so popular the first time. We're trying him out the second time. And who knows, maybe we'll keep him around even longer this time. Don't uh, worry, I'll be worse this time, I promise. So if you think of any random, unpredictable things you want to see done or topics you want to hear us talk about, let us know through our Facebook group email, which is podcasts, uh, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. I promise I did sleep last night, but I have had some wine. Um, and we'll let you know as so we dive into different topics, what's going on. If you think there's somebody you want to see, let us know. So is JR back or should I keep talking? You should keep talking and introduce nope, who else I'm is back. here. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> Terry's eager, eager, eager. So, but today's, we're going to first talk about what the topic is for the day. Uh, Bayonet Books has an anthology coming out as well as so many other anthologies. Bane just did the Freehold Anthology as well as there's the... Um, a new noir fatality from uh, noir anthology. Um, so we're kind of fascinated. I'm fascinated by short content and what's going on with it, whether it be novellas, short stories, novellettes, novelettes, which JR can explain the difference between them or anything else that we have going on. So let's bring on our guests and they can tell us what, they're here for Terry Mixon, since you're so eager. Can you? I'm not sure why I'm here. I'm a novelist. What do I know about short stories? Oh, uh, you know a thing or two. You've done I've a, read a few of yours. Your short stories, dude. <laughs> so this is Terry Mixon, who's not going to tell us anything about himself other than he th he says he's. I'm Terry Mixon. Author of Empire of Bones and Imperial Marine Saga, and uh, I'm a, a space opera military science fiction guy, and that's it. That's me. And then we have the lovely- And he worked for NASA. That's his- um, hold, hold on. He worked for NASA as part of the department to fake the moon landing, so that is his credentials to write sci-fi. Oh, so oh, it's I only worked for NASA for 16 there. years. It was only just a barely a blip in, in the radar. <laughs> And then, yeah, but I mean, you help you help fund the conspiracy, so that that counts. Oh, I'm too broke to fund any conspiracy. Buy his books, so he's less broke, and he we can see what other conspiracies he comes up with. Well, I mean, if 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 NASA could hire Stanley Kubrick to film the moon landings, I mean, you know, that's a pretty fat budget right there. I mean, that's where it's all going. 
<laughs> Jamie true. looks a little worried. That's true. Oh, no, I'm so used to this. <laughs> so, Jamie, will you go ahead and introduce yourself? Uh, I'm Jamie Denote. Um, I am a uh, two-time contributor to the Freehold universe via Resistance with my husband here. And uh, I have my solo debut story in Defiance, um, which I think is currently throwing some people for a loop. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little dark. We've heard, how many times have you heard that now? Yeah, that seems to be the primary adjective. <laughs> <laughs> and Christopher Denotes. Hey, uh, Chris Denote, um, pretty new at this too. First time we got published was like Jamie said together in Free Old Resistance. Um, Last year, I did a uh, my first solo debut short in an anthem called Space Force, Building the Legacy, which came out right around the time uh, just before the real thing got announced. And um, second, uh, or third rather, short work came out with Doc Wolrab uh, in Defiance. And that, I guess, fits more of the novelette description. Uh, we'll, we'll hear you know the expert opinion of JR here to, to confirm or deny that. But I've um, got a few more things in the bag right now. Uh, two pieces that I'm um, just waiting on editorial comments uh, from Cedar Sanderson from one of hers. Yeah, so next year or two, we'll ought to get some more stuff out finally. Yep, and I've seen some of the proposals that were signed contract-wise for, for him for longer content. So um, basically when, when I told Jamie she was showing up because I'm nice like that, he, she's like, oh, well, if I have to be here, he does too. This misery loves company, right, Terry? We are a package deal. Yep. <laughs> yeah, both of us in the same house anyway. Yes, Sean, now hush. I mean, it does make it convenient. The commute is, is killer sometimes. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, I mean, I don't want I don't want you to tax yourself. Uh at the end of the, the episode, we'll have in the show notes all of their social media. Yeah, I believe it. We'll have all of the social media links so you can follow all of them, stalk them as you do. Um, so let's start with the elephant in the room. Why do you think short stories sort of fell out of uh, fashion with um, with the novelettes, novellas, and and short content as defined by, I think the Hugo is the one that set the standard of, of word counts for everything, right, Terry? You were around in the beginning. Oh, sure. That's how old I am. I was I was there in the very beginning. Uh, it depends on who you ask what the definitions of what short stories, novelettes, novellas, everything is. Sifwa has a different definition than what the Hugos do. And it's I kind of think it's just, you know, a gut check on, on what's a short story and what's not. As, as far as why they're so, uh, not as popular as they are, I'm not sure that's even a true statement. Um, it may be that there are fewer anthology magazines that are publishing short stories, but I don't know that I would say that they're less popular. It may be just a financial decision that anthologies aren't making them enough money. Fair enough. That was uh, Seska's pushback when we prepped these show notes. Yes. So uh, do you want to weigh in on that, Jamie or, or Chris? Do you guys feel like they're not as popular or just not as lucrative? I, I think it's more... I don't know. I kind of think academia ruined it for it in a lot of ways, you know, because I think the more short stories and short content got taken on by, oh, slice of life is that, you know, is the thing. And, you know, you need to be real literature. I kind of think that killed it because I used to work in a library. So everything that I saw for short stories was pulps, weird fiction, you know, early 20th century stuff, late 19th century stuff. And it just seemed like after the 
I don't know, after World War II, maybe it just seems like it just sort of the, started to die. And then by the 70s, boom, it's it's gone. I, that, that's just the impression I got. And I don't know. I don't know if it's just because taste change or because English professors ruined it for everybody. I've been trying to figure it out. I like I that. I mean, the English professors. I mean, I know Chuck will probably take get an umbrage with me, but I blame the English professors. I think that's a good one. Um, I but think it could possibly be like a self-licking ice cream cone. It, um, writers want to break out. They want their debut story. Um, they want their breakout hit. And so they, but they see what's popular. They see what the, who the best sellers are. And it's all these doorstopper novels. So they think, got to write that. I can't, I can't get rich making short stories. I have to do this. So therefore the short stories aren't written as often or aren't published as often because both well, sides are chasing the money. Maybe. I think, I think there's a, a couple of things about it that are really interesting. One is, so writers of the future is all anthology. And it is, if we can do another episode talking about why it's great and everything else, but they do an anthology every year and they have really good content, consistently good content and good authors. And they're all breakout authors. That's part of, if it's a, for those quick synopsis of it, it's a writing competition for those people who have not made significant money. Uh, and it's like less than two short, less than two pieces of published work that have made a profit. And they actually specify the dollar amount. I'm not even going to pretend what it is, but um, so basic, and it is one where they come out that it's a writing competition that they do every quarter and all the winners go and get put in an anthology, but it's consistently making enough money that they continue to do it. It's, it was put on originally by L. Ron Hubbard. I think that's right. Yeah, Brad Torgerson um, talks about this a lot. Like, yeah, it, it's really been fascinating because like they've had, I was at Dragon Con one year and this guy, literally, he turned around, he submitted the same short story, no changes, no editing, except for to the headline, I'm a, I won a Writers of the Futures competition and he got a check back instead of a rejection letter because the people know that that's a good short story anthology. So there's a certain level of, credibility with some of these and I think where anthologies can really struggle is sometimes they're not as consistently good but I think for one I think readers have really gravitated towards anthologies I've seen a lot of them coming out um Chris Kennedy Publishing puts out like well they put out a, a book every week but they they've probably put out at least six anthologies in the last year Bain's doing more and more anthologies um and I was talking with uh, Gail Martin about some of it. And I think some of it is where they've, they may not be making lots of money, but the, for the readers, they're cracking and they're really enjoying it is it's a great way and an inexpensive way to sample a bunch of different authors. It's a great way to, um, they, they have to figure out. So my brain's going like six miles an hour, but it's a great way to find out a bunch of authors. But the other thing is we have short attention span theater everywhere these days and not everybody wants to binge read a 13 plus series. I'm sorry, Terry. I love the series, but it is, it is long and gorgeous. 
and it is opera, space opera, so operas are supposed to be long and gorgeous. But not everybody, some people get really intimidated by that. So they want to try it, but they don't want to put in a time suck commitment if it's someone that they don't think they'll like. But also with the pandemic, it was nice to be able to just sit down, quickly read a story, then go about the rest of my day because I had a beginning, middle and end all within a couple hours of reading. So I think for, I think the problem that they have is marketing is how do you market an anthology? Because thanks to Amazon's little niche of all these subcategories, it makes marketing those things very easy. But when you have an anthology, not everybody in there is a Dresden file book. Not everybody's in it. So you have more variety. It's like a variety show. And how do you market a variety show? Well, it's like a really great series of anthos that I saw was the Planetary series by Tuscany Bay. That's reprint. These are great. It's just I think it suffers from that marketing thing. And, uh, you know, it's kind of weird because I also I was wondering, does this like mirror what happened in music? You know, we in the uh, 60s on, you had the albums, you know, the long form, right? You know, the albums are the novels of music, right? As mm-hmm. opposed to singles. And then you get back into the, uh, the present day. It's all about it's all about singles again. And I remember, you know, being a kid going to Hot Topic. Yeah, I'm going to date myself here a little bit. And you get those punk, you get those punk rock compilations. You know, all these new records. You know, all these new records. Yeah, they got like uh, 13, 14, 20 bands on them you never heard of. And if you like a couple of them, you know, hey, you're not out anything, first of all. Yeah. And two, if uh, you like three or four, you go, you pick up the record. You know, so well, that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. And I mean, there's also like Liberty Con, which we've talked about. Liberty Con has an anthology that was is put out through Bang, available everywhere called Give Me Liberty. And it is and you have some big names in it. It has sold a bunch of copies and they will continue to to have that as a running thing because it's uh, everything goes to support the Liberty Con charity. So, I mean, there's also sometimes where maybe like for her, that was easy marketing for Liberty because they have a huge following of people as well as their authors. So it's really hard to say. As a writer, one of the reasons that I, I do write that, short uh, stories for anthologies is it gets me and my work in a short form in front of a different audience than I have mm-hmm. already. So I know um, Jody, who couldn't make it today because she is having a blast. Uh, but she had prior commitments. Um, she has told me before because she wrote um, for the Black Tide Rising anthology, which was a very different story than what she normally writes. Because she said it gave her a chance to stretch her legs and try something different. So I think Jr. was going to try and say something. I think. <laughs> I think to a point that the, the a lot of the magazines that were a lot of the short content was published and people could subscribe to them and submit them back when people used to go door to door and sell you things like magazine subscriptions. And as the, the trad pubs constantly consolidated with each other. So there were less and less companies out there. Um, you add that to the digital revolution, which a lot of uh, existing marketing sort of at first they dismissed, Oh, that'll never take on. It'll be like the cassette tape. Nobody will ever do it. Um, and then as that sort of happened and they missed the boat, they, they just, the business model, they lost it. And I think, I think that's a large portion of it. I, I think as that happened though, you have that generation that was conditioned to try out new stories with short content aged to the point where there wasn't anything to pass on. And that gap is what's hurting. I think the sales on short content, there's a reason that 
I, I do the Bayonet Books anthologies is because I'll write a short story because it just calls to me and I just I write it so I can get it out of my head. Well, it's easier to sell it as a collection of other short stories than it is to sell it by itself for 99 cents when $5 can get you a 100,000 word novel versus 99 cents gets you 10. And so that value proposition makes the anthologies a, a sort of marketable way to, to do that. But I, I put it on the uh, consolidation of the trad pub, sort of shrinking the professional market, maybe artificially so if the readers are still there, but now you're at the point where you've got to find those readers again. You know, that's a Everything really good point. Um, we're starting to see, I think you're starting to see some of those come back um, with the easings. They're publishing them as e-magazines now. Um, I, I don't know. I, I know, I think, was it uh, Galactic Outlaws is one um, that's that's out there regularly. I know some of the uh, you know, RPG Mike, producing companies. Yeah, there's the Galaxy's Edge by Mike, Mike Rafferty. Yes. Um, and then I, I know like some of the um, RPGs are starting to put out their own easings where it'll have a short story set in the generic field because there is overlap between people that play games and people that read. And so they're starting to do like sort of a hybrid where it's a short story, then something inspired by that short story of game content, and then, you know, go from there um, to sort of bridge the gap. But uh, it'll be interesting to see because now if you're doing it as a magazine, you're not artificially limited by page length and page counts. So does that kill the short story now that you've got room to be long and verbose? I don't know. But anybody else have anything to weigh in before we move on to the next question? Um, just just this is that um, there was also the rebranding of a lot of those magazines that collapsed and died and somebody else buys the rights and it comes back. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what hurt them was Weird Tales 1980 is not Weird Tales 1940 or, or 2010 is not, you know, it might have these old names like ama Astonishing and Amazing Tales and all that kind of stuff. But when somebody cracks the cover and it's not what they're expecting even as that generation of fans or readers dies off, I think that, I think branding is a big part of it too, you know, but that ties into the economic stuff. Like you said, I think branding has become much more of a thing, particularly. Um, and I think you're right, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, one of the biggest anthologies was sword and sorcery anthologies. Um, those were huge when I was younger. Um, and that was their consistent marketing was it was sword and sorcery and it was all, it was geared towards being YA friendly so that they could be in the public libraries as well as school libraries. And so, and it was an interesting thing with that. And then, um, so yeah, I think that branding it, if, I mean, if you create your own anthology brand with it, maybe, maybe that helps like the extraordinary expanding universe and the planetary anthologies. I, I've talked to um, Chris Rocchio and we had him on in the after show um, who for a while organized for Bain, their anthology collections. He mostly handled, as I understand, the reprints where they were doing it. And one of the things that when we first started doing anthology, we just generically branded by subgenre and said, go have fun. Uh, and that works to a point if you've got big names in the anthology. Like if you put a Larry Korea in it, his fans are going to buy it and you're going to make your money back. But if it doesn't have a big name like that, the billboard header, then you're, you're sort of battling against the wind, so to speak, uh, in which case <clears throat> a, a central theme versus just a generic subgenre will get you farther because a theme could span several subgenres, but it's got that theme. So instead of just Space Fleet, like the one we've got coming out, it's Heroic Last Stands, 
because that, I mean, it's got to be Space Fleet, but it could be so much more. And then you don't limit it by genre. You're limiting it by the story. And I think that's a better way. It makes it easier to market was what, what, what the people over at Bain, the advice they gave me after, you know, I kept doing it. <laughs> so, I think there's something well, yeah. to be said about that. Since I wouldn't go away, they're like, well, you might as well do it right then. And I think um, uh, Laurel K. Hamilton did an anthology, and it was all centrally themed stories of hope. Fantastic Hope, I think was the name. Yeah, Fantastic Hope. And um, and then the Noir Fatale, those were anthologies that did very, very well. I worked for Barnes & Noble at the time, and they were on the bestseller tables. And um, because they had a theme that was open, but still encapsulated enough. They also had huge names. They did have a huge names. I was talking with um, Gary Poole one time, and uh, Gary Poole has edited several of them, all of the Black Tide Rising anthologies and several other things for Bane. And Chris and Jamie are nodding their heads going, yes, Gary, the long hair, Gary. But, uh, and he was saying that when he set out, it was, he did tried for, he said it was somebody else's formula and he just tried to copy it, which was like a third big names, a third B-listers on a third new. And um, if you look at the Black Tide Rising anthology, um, the first one, most of those new, what were new authors then have books, several books out now. So I guess it worked. I, I will say the, the, mark, the market for that is shifting. What's that, Terry? I didn't say anything. It was Jamie. No, Chris. Oh, I it was set up as a farm team. Yeah. Nobody yeah. heard that. So one of the things I've noticed is there's, there is a, a well, not a discrepancy, but there's a distinction. Some of the indie authors that are putting out anthologies, they'll do limited run anthologies where it'll only be published for six months and then it's totally yeeted off the board. Uh, sometimes they leave up the paperback, sometimes not. Um, I actually see, like, and I did that with our first one that we did. But, I, you know, looking back on for the amount of work you put into organizing that and, and paying for all the editing and the cover, like going forward, we, we plan to leave ours up because, I mean, it, you know, obviously rights revert and people can republish it. But with, when you pull yours down, that's like, like, I don't know, it just it seems like going to the moon and then trying to wipe the footprints up. Like there, there's something to be said for leaving that out there and, and letting readers find it in their time instead of sort of that artificial six months constraint or whatever, you know, you agree upon. And I have been surprised that, you know, an anthology that we put out, I don't know, a year and a half ago, I'm still getting okay as shells day to day. I mean, it's random, but so I do wonder as the, as the market shifts, whether getting away from that short run only model will help with that resurgence. Because if you can only get it six months, what if you missed the window and you just didn't have the money then? Well, then you're kind of hosed. Whereas if you don't unpublish... Yeah, what do you think, Terry? It makes it a little easier for him. So I've been in anthologies, both ones that are still out and ones that were short run. I personally think they should be allowed to leave them up. Even the ones that are long term, even where it's stories that I get a percentage of, I'll get a percentage of the earnings for a year, and after that, it's all the um, all to the uh, to the um, anthology. So. I've made my, I've made what money I'm going to make off of it in that year. What do I care if they make a little bit more after that? I hope I hope they do. Maybe it'll make them make another anthology. And that's one of the reasons we started doing our series of interviews with authors of short content because I like short stories. I like writing them. I like reading them. So I'm trying to foster making them <laughs> give them a space where people can talk about them because there's just not as a lot of them. 
And, and Seska humors me when we do those. So I don't humor <laughs> you. I enjoy All them. Right. You interviewed Mel Todd over Noodle Day, which is one of my hands down, one of my favorite stories I've read in a while. And I'm going to say it very slowly because it's a tongue twister. Summer Solstice Shenanigans Anthology. Yeah, I will not say that one fast, but that's the one that they've got out about urban fantasy. And I will say that, you know, when you ju even just interviewing them and listen to authors talk, like you you hear about genres, I might not have probably read urban fantasy on my own, but listening to them talk, I'm like, dude, that actually sounds kind of cool. So I, I think the exposure that you get with, what's that? I'd make you read it, but I'm bossy. <laughs> You are, but it's okay. All right. So uh, we've talked about sort of the, the marketing and the business side of it, but as a general rule, do you see value in sto the storytelling medium of short content, which is basically anything sub-novel? Sure. Terry? Well, why don't we decide what a novel is then? I think Sifwa says uh, that I a think, novel is 40,000 words plus. So can you give people like me who have no idea what that means in page like what a rough page account would that be about 250 words a page it could be um, anywhere from 250 to 400 so, words that's a lot of math on the fly yeah jr should be used to this okay but how many pages is that <laughs> he should be used to it after so all these we'll like, say a, like a thin paperback book that's that's the size thin paperback there you go so uh, Amazon's with Kindle, and that's pretty standard with e-formats. E so digitally, 250 words roughly is a page. So a short story is about 30 to 40 pages roughly. Okay. Um, so I looked it up. I've got the CIFWA, um short story list definition. And uh, a short story is up to 7,500 words. A novelette is 7,500 to 17,500. More than that, up to 40,000 is a novelette, or excuse me, is a novella, and then 40,000 onward is a novel. I think for most modern anthologies, they, they're roughly calling a short story 6,000 to 10,000 range. Okay. Um, yeah. So it, it, it depends. Um, but you know, I, you obviously, if you're looking at a print copy, you're going to fit more words per page than you would digitally. Um, cause they, they scale for all like, you know, it, are they reading it on their telephone versus their Kindle versus their nook versus, you know, ad hominem number of, uh, electrical devices I know nothing about. Um, and I think that that's why you tend to see a, a, a just a standard 250 words a page cause it makes sizing the code and sciencey stuff work. <laughs> yes, you did get me to list Nook. I know it's heresy. I'm sorry, Bezos. I forgive me. Nook, um, but what about <laughs> what about you, Jamie or Chris? Do you guys see value aside from just as a reader? Uh, do you see value in short content? Oh yeah. Um. One, you know, kind of like we were saying before. It, you know, aside from as a reader getting to sample a bunch of different authors. As a writer, it's helpful to, you know, use a short story to refine your craft and get your name out there and, you know, just kind of get used to the whole business. I think it's also good because I look at this I like that's the it's like dipping a toe in the water. I think it's the thing that America contributed to writing. I mean, we do Russians do the novels, right? We do the short story, we, you know, between Poe and Mark Twain and all that kind of stuff. Us and like the English, I think I, I love shorts. I love short fiction. 
I mean, it, because it really forces you, you got to be sparse and really good with your words. You can't waste anything. And that's for someone like me, especially who loves to talk a lot, man, that's discipline. And that's, that it's, it's good. It's good to force yourself into that. You know, it's, it's like, it's like batting I practice. You, yeah. I will say it's also, if you're, you know, for new authors that are getting started, I, everyone that asked me advice on how to get better, I say, well, your first round of professional editing will change you drastically because you learn things that you don't even like your quirks. You don't even realize you have. Well, that's expensive when you're paying, you know, roughly two cents a word and it's a hundred thousand word novel, but a short story at 10,000 words is an affordable way to do a Not just an edit, but like a developmental edit where they tear your story apart from a structural and grammar. And so if nothing else, it's just a learning exercise. It's an affordable way to, to get that masterclass, so to speak. So, um all right so we we beat that horse to death um so do you think with the resurgence in the anthologies with uh e-zines coming back and trying to don't laugh doc it's just not polite uh, I love like that. do you think that there's going to be a res you would uh do you think there's going to be a resurgence in short content i'm seeing more anthologies lately hearing about them than i ever have before um I, you know you're getting a lot more i think traction with like the e-magazines or am I just seeing it because I'm interested in it? What do you think, Terry? I think that I don't really know. When when I said that I'm a novelist and I, I do some short stories, I'm not a voracious short story reader, so I don't pay attention to the market. Fair enough. All right, what about you, Jamie, Chris? Well, um, yeah, we have been seeing a lot more anthologies from you know, established universes like you see MHI, you see Four Horsemen, um, Freehold, and, you know, as the primary authors have, you know, built the world up, um, I don't know, sometimes they need uh, fresh voices. Yeah. yeah. Fresh voices and the opportunity to just fill in pieces of the world for them. And uh, that goes back to like back in the day with shared universes. Like Thieves World was a was one back in the day, and if you ever read the Borderland Anthos series, which was all linked together and stuff like that, um, you know, even like the way that uh, the pulp writers used to do these round robins to build their short worlds, you know, to build their worlds up through short content. H.P. Lovecraft did that. Robert E. Howard kind of did that. They were all they were all buddies, and you're seeing some of that now with the pulp rev guys too. Like I love the I love Kursova. That's a, a good um, magazine. That's and Story Hacks another one. It's pulling, I think, bringing back, especially the sword and sorcery uh, adventure style short stories, too. And so it may not get huge, but there's definitely a market for it. There's there's a solid, steady selling, steady selling niche that digs it. Well, I and, Flint was one of the first people really, he actually took some of his short stories. People were making um, essentially fanfic of, uh, and set in the 1632 universe. And then he actually started publishing, taking those and going, hey, can I publish and publishing them as anthologies? So they were then becoming canon. And I thought that was an ingenious tool to do. And um, it really, it, it was great because if there's not accepted by the world creators, really, it's just kind of fan fiction. And so if you're going to write it and you can get yourself into an anthology set with that universe, now you're canon, not fan fiction. And that's much cooler. That and is. you're getting paid. Maybe but a lot. Potentially. 
Yeah, you're getting paid and you're developing that writer resume. Um, but and to be honest, like it, it's just really nice. Uh, I know a lot of authors who Casey Izell, Marissa Wolf, they, they'll gladly say they started with essentially fan fiction because the tools were there. So they really focused on their story craft versus their world building craft. And it really helped them just kind of tackle one of the two major aspects of writing at a time. So with, with something like the four horsemen universe, it gives other authors a chance to explore the dark nooks and crannies of ideas and themes that might not get touched on in the regular novels. I just signed the contract for doing my 10th short story for a four horsemen universe anthology. And I have went places the, that Chris Kennedy and, and Mark Wandry wish I'd never gone. <laughs> well, that's when I travel. Yeah. Anti-gravity. <laughs> anti-matter. Mm. Hey, hey, there's been some good science articles <laughs> about anti-matter of late. And believe me, I tag Mark in every we single should. one of them. <laughs> good, good. I appreciate the spunk. Uh, do you have anything to add to that, or are we ready to move on there, Jamie and Chris? Good. Okay, so do you think that uh, that the market, and I know Terry doesn't really have much an opinion on this, so we'll skip him for this one. Um, do you think that there there's a chance that that resurgence will allow them to become more fiscally viable, or will they forever be relegated to loss leaders and, and a way to get your, your name out there? Oh, I think there's always a chance. And the eternal optimist, so. I Yeah, like I really hope so. Um, I, I think I think tie-ins help with it too, because like Jr., you brought up something really important when you said that um, game fit, you know, game stuff, lore gets tied in the video games and all that. So in a way, they kind of already are. I mean, that's uh, if you think about it, how many game manuals do you have are like chock full of just short fiction, essentially to build the game world up. So if you look at it from that perspective, yeah, they, I guess they kind of already are. Otherwise, I, I hope they do. I hope they get financially viable again. I mean, Lost Leader or, or free gimmies. It doesn't suck. It you know it gets people attracted to what you're doing. That's awesome. But it'd be it'd be nice to see something kind of like uh, turn into a breakout hit. Uh, you know, from uh, something like that. Like I said, so I, I'm so new to writing that I look at everything as uh, from a musician standpoint because I used to play in a couple bands. So I ha I keep making those sorts of allegories because they make sense to me. You know, and I, I, and I admit they're not perfect matches. Close enough. I mean, it's still the, the creative IP um, idea. So I think one of the things that's hard to do, though, is, is the anthologies because you're hurting cats to get, you know, 10, 20, sometimes 30, <clears throat> 36 uh, authors together for one collection. You end up with it takes time to produce and then editing doesn't happen like it's not an instant pivot. So the ability to do certain things like pop culture isn't as there, which makes it hard to uh, make money at that. So, for instance, when we did our uh, Storming Area 51 anthology, uh, if we had been there the firstest with the mostest, I think, you know, we probably still could have made it. If it had been the Woodstock of our generation, like they had predicted, it'd still be selling. But, you know, when you do anything that's tied to current events, I think you you run that risk of, well, if I'm not fast enough and those the tides turn a little bit. So I think I think if you're strategic, you can get things that still sell. Um, but you just have to do a little bit more forward planning on on what. Although I will say that that's where 
small press publishing and indie publishing gives you a little bit of a leeway. I've listened to Chris Rocchio talk about the, the back end amount of time it took to produce something. Um, and you know, that there's just no way you can pivot on that. If it's a year or two out that you're planning things. Yeah. Whereas, you know, it takes me maybe six months to throw something together and that includes editing. So I, I, I hopefully that ability to pivot will, will bring enough interest back. So and I'll keep pestering Terry and maybe he'll give me a, another short story where he kills me gloriously because I want to be the Joe Buckley of my generation. That's my you goal. You've got to die life. a lot many more times before you're Joe Buckley sport. Oh, we can help too. I know he's only got like a hundred million thousand. Well, if I make a clone army where I clone myself at like a bazillion times and then kill them all in one nuke strike, does it count? No. We'll have to think about that one. It's got to be the one and only. I mean, you're supposed to be on my the side only. Terry. Terry, you're supposed to be on my side, not Joe's, right? You're team, am, team JR, not Joe. I am never on your side. Are, Did you invite me thinking I was on your one side? One of these this days, not though. not true. Don't need it. <laughs> I only came on today right, because so I said I wanted to tell you you were wrong. You're wrong, JR. <laughs> see, this is why Terry so, likes me. Uh, okay, let's practice this. The Empire of Bones is the greatest space opera of all times. Now tell me I'm wrong. I'm waiting. An author can't judge their own work. I let other people tell me how good they like my stuff or not. Team Kelsey. Ooh. Nah, Jared's the main character, but we'll move on. So let's dig into the, the nuts and bolts. So what do you think makes a good short story? Uh, you got any opinions on that, Terry, other than about how right I am? Uh, yeah, sure. death does make it very good. I think what makes what <laughs> makes a good short story is having it not quite go the way the reader would expect. They start down one path, and then they're they're what they're like. Wait, wait, where where are we going with this story? This the the facts aren't quite lining up with what I expected, but they still get an entertaining outcome. If if it's predictable, I don't think it's enjoyable. I think a little bit of unpredictableness in a short story is what I what I like. What about you, Doc? I think you're uh, a voracious reader. I am a voracious reader. I think one of the big things about a short story that um makes it work is the tropes add a can add a lot of context when used correctly per, particularly for some quick don't don't rely on it but for some quick world building like super wham bam okay you know alcoholic mom okay now we know why this person's burying themselves in the fandom and um in our story uh love finds a way you know we uh, okay, she's got a troubled home life. So because the home life wasn't the story, the story was what happened when she went on the road trip. So it, but it gave context to why she was going on the road trip. So sometimes using those tropes in the back to just kind of build some quick world building without a lot of word detail. Uh, but I do think that one of the most important things is being concise and using those, picking those powerful words. Um, you know, hovel instead of uh, a shack. Something to paint that picture quickly and concisely helps a lot. So that's mine as a reader. All right. What a, that's that's a, a well thought out answer. It's almost like you've seen the questions in advance. What about you, Jamie? Chris? Um, Self-contained. I mean, a short work needs to be start, middle, finish, you know, self-contained and stand on its own. 
And I think if it could do that and it doesn't like just drop off suddenly, which is why I brought up the English professor crack before about how, oh, let's do something experimental. Let's just have the story in here for no reason and nothing happens. You know, kind of crap they make you be reading yeah. English classes. I'm like, that doesn't stick with people. If it does, it sticks with, it sticks with you because the story made you mad. You know what I mean? The, the author, yeah. you know, did a bait and switch. Like you said, it should do something unexpected, like Terry said, but it shouldn't be bait and switch. It's got to be self-contained, you know, a complete, it needs to be a complete work. Well, one of them, one of the, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Jamie, you can go and I, we can circle back to me because I'm, I'm a talker. Oh, that's okay. Um, I was actually going to just copy your answer. Uh, <laughs> um, no, I think a, uh, yeah, a short story needs to be if nothing else, just concise and get to the point and still be hard hitting. Yeah. Well, what two of two of my favorite novels of all time, which anybody who listens probably is going to go, yes, we know, is The Rowan by Anne McCaffrey and then Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey. Both, particularly Dragonflight, was a pivotal novel in science fiction. Yes, science fiction, JR. Um because I'm not going to fight with you when you're being stupid, JR. Pern is not a fantasy. It is a sci-fi. But Dragonflight, but both these novels, back on topic as we break chain, Chris, is um, both these novels started as, as short stories. They were actually published. I think Locust Magazine is what published Dragonflight the first time. And but they blossomed more because of the that concise world building. It had that build that um, you know the beginning, middle, and end of a good story. But there was so much more, and so she was able to go back and flush it out. So, you know, you hit on something there because there's still that people was... today who say the original version of Ender's Game, which was in There Will Be War, the first one that Jerry Purnell edited, is better than the, the full length novel. You know, the final version that came out in like '91. So, you know, there's a big back and forth about that. Uh, you know, I, I've kind of gone on both sides of that. Where it's like, okay. Which one do I prefer? Chris, closer to the mic, please. We love you. Oh. We want to hear your voice. No, but, I'm sorry about that. So, no, did, well, you actually, like, did you hear that, what I said about Ender's Game? Yeah, that the, the short story part was actually probably better edited, right? So, um, A Beautiful Friendship by David they Weber. Had- is another example. It actually got published originally as a short story and an anthology, and then he made it into a full-length novel. So. So it used to be when there were long-standing magazines that had subscription-based services, like, I don't know, people joke about Reader's Digest, but that's an example. People would sell serialized um, short story universes. So one story followed the next. They were each self-contained. You could pick up that magazine and read that that particular story and it was done. But it tied to the one before and it links to the one that came after it. And so when rights returned, a lot of those authors did what they call braided novels and they'd weave those stories back together. So we interviewed when we were still sci-fi shenanigans, Kristen Catherine Rush and her dive, is it helps? No, Hell Divers is Nicholas Smith or Sansbury. But uh, was it Space Divers, I think? One of her divers universes is um was a braided novel for the first one it was actually three uh novellas that she wove together um and so it was very common back in the day you don't see the braided novel as much anymore because you're not seeing as much serialized short fiction Uh, but it is a way to to make it 
concise. Um, and Jamie, you or see me, Chris, you had mentioned the um, the self-contained, and that is something you know, having been on both ends, or uh, both as a writer, as a publisher, and as a reader. When people approach a short story like it's just the first three chapters of their novel to get you hooked and then they just leave you hanging, that pisses you off more than anything. Like, no, you got to tell an independent story. Like, you can change it later and make it the first three chapters, but it better in the beginning stand alone. Um, and I think that's where it's too easy to say, well, let me just give you the first couple chapters of this book. So you want to go read the rest of the book, but you, you end up angering the readers. And then I don't know. Well, um, that, that they'll follow through in a way that's positive for you. One of the things I like also on it, and this is actually a time when I wish the author had done short stories from, okay. It's, it's a little outside the genre. I did not read the book, but my friend was trying to explain to me all the different stuff. 50 shades of gray. The Whatever. We know you read it. <laughs> it's okay. I've read weirder stuff. Um, but so she wrote the novels and then she's been going back and essentially rewriting the novels from the other guys, per, from the male's perspective. I'd much rather, I have no interest in those novels. Just give me like short stories of it because you already know everything, if that makes any sense. And um, Alona Andrews did on for a while on her website as free content. And I think she actually did one in a short story where it was the male character's perspective of the same moment. And so, or of some of the same moments as her main character, Kate Daniels, which was great because you already know everything. So there's no need for this world building of how did he get there? You know, he's there, you know? And I, what are the things? Sorry. No, what? One of the things you said earlier, uh, JR is um, I think you said, Chris and Catherine, it's actually Christine Catherine Rush, and the novel was Diving the Wreck. Oh. oh. Okay. I must have glitched because I thought I said her name right, but it's also possible I messed up. And if so, I will blame Seska, and you can send the hate mail to Doc Seska at um, Blasting Blades <laughs> Podcast. I just, I just uh, wanted to clarify that, that email, one. It's real. Okay. You know, she, Jared, she's a great so, short story um, writer. If I've read a number of her short stories as well. And she's one to go to when you're looking for that type of, of quality. She writes good stuff. I, I think her and her husband write a short story before they've even had breakfast every day. They're, they're pretty prolific. The two of them. Uh, they've Dean been Wesley writing Smith for is, is her husband almost 40 years. So they've got quite the backlog of, of stories lurking around. <laughs> That does Talking help. Short stories. Um, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and interrupt so, you here, Jr. and say you want to talk short stories. Her husband, Dean Wesley Smith, publishes his own monthly magazine called Smith Stories with novels and short fiction that he writes himself. Wow. Okay. <laughs> That's a lot of writing. Uh, one day I will, will yeah. be that grown up and write that fast. That's that's prolific. I will never be that grown up. I can't write um, that fast. You know what? I would say as a reader, I, I as a reader and somebody who buys a lot of books. So as a reader and a consumer, who, so because I, I very rarely, I love my library. I do support my local library. Um, I used to be through library fees because of not returning the books on time until I decided it was just cheaper to buy the books. 
I am bad at returning books. <laughs> Something to keep in mind when he says that uh, he publishes novels and whatnot. He he came up as a writer at the point where novels were much shorter. So he really does live with the 40, 50,000 words as being a novel. So okay. it's not necessarily the doorstops we're seeing these days. Yeah, but I was going to say is I'd sure. rather have quality writing versus uh, pumping them out, so to speak. If that makes sense. I don't think speed and quality necessarily can't intersect. I just, no, they that's can't. A, a they can't. Case basis. Um, Jody Lynn Nine can, if you need, uh, she used to say that she could public write a short story in 72 hours or less. She can do it. She's fabulous. Not everybody can do it though. I actually find short stories harder to write. Cause like, Chris said earlier, you've got to be more succinct with your words. And I tend to be very verbose. I, I see nothing wrong with the Tolkien manner of describing every blade of grass. I know it's, it's hard to believe, but it's true. So like for me, the short content sort of forces me to think, you know, more succinctly. And that takes longer for me to write than if I was just writing the same amount of words in chapter form for, for something longer. But all right. So speaking of, of writing the and reading short fiction, do you think for it to work that short content has to be limited to one POV given the length restrictions or can it work uh, from more than one perspective? And we'll go to you first, Jamie, this time. Um, it, I think it can work from more than one perspective, but you have to be very, very careful about it. Um, and I certainly wouldn't do more than two. Uh, just because you don't have the space to really explore the, those characters that in depth. Well, in Promise a Man, you do it once in the yeah, whole story. Yeah, I do story, one POV shift the entire story. story and, and that's just make the ending do this to you. Yeah. But it, it has to be that works. What about very you? purposeful. Fair enough. And I, I think that goes back with the, with the word choice when it comes to short fiction. You also have to be more deliberate with your story plotting because you're, mm -hmm. you're more condensed. So it needs to be a tighter look, I think. But what about you, Chris? Um, I think you can, but I think the two, the rule of two, if you want to call it that here, is probably smart. Um, for the um, uh, the Defiant story that Doc and I wrote, it's basically, it is two POVs as you flip-flopping back before, back and forth between, but it's also about almost 20,000 words. So we had a little bit more space to play with with that. Um, but, um, yeah, we couldn't have done more than just the two POVs. I think it just would have turned into a hot mess. You know what I mean? So, um, I, I think two is doable in a short work. What about you, Terry? I have written multiple points of view inside of a short story, but the two plot lines were very tightly interwoven and the two events were meant to come together very quickly and the events in one side of the plot depended on what the character in the other part did. So it was an incredibly tight weaving of timing and pacing to make that work. Like a Guy Ritchie uh, movie <laughs> or Quentin Tarantino movie. See, that's somebody who could do that. You know, even with, and with a short film and something I, I read once said that the reason why Philip K. Dick's stories keep getting made in the movies is those middle length um, works, novellas and short novels, novelettes are perfect for turning into a 90 minute, uh, two hour film. 
Whereas yeah. like regular novels, like that's a mini series or that's a multi-part film series. To yeah, Broke, Brokeback Mountain, um, when I was at Barnes and Noble, I had to shelve it. <laughs> and it, it was thinner than this book. It was like stupid thin. And I went, really, this is a novel? Like we're, we're shutting this in the novel section? But uh, yeah, I was at first. It was very funny because um, that was the first time I realized that Brokeback Mountain was written based off of a, a piece of literature. And because I was like, wouldn't the book be thicker if it was based off the movie? They went, no, it went in reverse. Oh, okay. So, yeah, Jer, I took so, was mentioned it to Jer, and he goes, I'm not bringing that topic up. <laughs> nope. So I think you can do it. The one way I've seen short fiction work with multiple POVs is one it's told in, um, I'm gonna probably butcher it because I've only seen it in writing, but epistolary um, where it's told in letters looking backwards because then you can get the multiple POVs because the central theme is whatever the, the current events are. And that story is pushed forward by the tales from the past. So like I did that with my one of my four horsemen um, short stories that got uh, made the Hugo reading list was it was the the final sort of goodbye ceremony. It's called Casper's Widow, but it was the letters that they had left. You know, if I die, read this kind of thing being being read aloud. And so while it was multiple POVs, the central POV was the the here and now. And I think anything more than that, you're going to have a lot of problems trying to trying to get that to work. And that's one of those sticks that if you do it over and over again, it stops having the impact. I think you can get away with that once or twice in your writing career. And then more than that, it starts to be, okay, yeah, we get it kind of thing. But what what do you think about that one, Doc, since you, you approach it as a reader? Do you do you think it can work with multiple points of view? Um, I think that you have to be super concise and almost make it a case of like vignette moments uh, where it's just like, ever so briefly i i think i actually read the short story that terry is talking about where he did the multiple ones and that was one of the very few times where i saw it and i saw it work so thank you all right well uh terry did you want to weigh anything more um i'm not sure if i if i managed to ask you or not i don't want to be rude no i'm good at least not publicly all right, so you know we've talked a little bit about what makes a good, in our opinion, obviously, and your mileage may vary. And if you if you disagree with us, feel free to join the uh, discussion in the comments, um, on the Facebook group, or you know wherever. But do you think, in order for a short content story to be well executed, that it has to be part of a larger series like what the Four Horsemen did, or do you think it works as one-off uh, in without being tied to larger universes? Um. Terry, you, you want to go? No, it doesn't have to be tied to a larger universe to be a successful short story. It just has to be a good story. Finding an audience might be easier when you're publishing something in an anthology that's part of a larger readership, but that's not a reflection on how good the story is. Okay, I can buy that. What about you, Chris? Um, I've read so much old stuff that honestly none of it was ever meant with being either interconnected or part of something bigger in mind. So yeah, I think if it stands alone, it stands alone. It's a great story. Um, it's cool if it's um, tied into something bigger or if it, even if it's like tangentially or loosely tied into something, because then it comes kind of like an Easter egg, you know, for the bigger, longer works. And that's always fun. 
Um, but I don't think it has to. So, Jamie, this is where you get to prove that you really are married uh, by disagreeing with him. Can you do it? Can you pull it off? <laughs> um, well, no, I don't think a, a story has to be tied into a larger universe. Um, I think doing so is uh, advantageous to the author because they don't have to spend that time building the world. They just get to tell their story. They don't have to create the background. They can just reference something in the larger universe and go on with the story. Fair enough. I, I think uh, a well-executed short story inevitably makes you want to, to know more about the universe. And so I've gotten some of my standalone short stories where like, well, where's the rest of this universe? I think all of, and I, I thought about that as a reader, every time I really liked a short story, I'm like, man, I want more. Um, so I, I think it can lead to that, but I don't think it has to. Coming at it right. from a from a reader, what do you think, Doc? Uh, I think some of the best short stories I've ever read were freestanding short stories. The Menace from Earth by Robert A. Heinlein um, is a great example of that. However, um, I do think if you if you're if you're looking at it from a sheer profitability standpoint, it is much easier to market it if it's connected to a shared uh, a universe that's already standing on its own two feet. But the number of short stories that have stemmed that or propagated truly fantastic universes is so impressive that I think that even if short story fiction be, is only a loss leader. It is a lost leader well worth having because we'd be without the Tower and the Hive saga. We'd be without uh, the uh, Tamsin Silver's Billy the Kid stuff, um, which I can't remember what she ended up calling the series. You'd be without so many great things that the Pern um, and I mean, I would never want to forgo those works and they all stemmed out of short stories. So I think short stories are a valuable and a necessary part of the literature field. So what are you, what is everyone's thoughts on anthologies where all of the stories link into a larger narrative to form a more cohesive tale? So I know, for example, Nathan Heistead did this with his Through the Wormhole series, where each story linked together into a larger story. I know Michael Z. Williamson did it with one of his Freehold University anthologies. Um, where each short story told and basically created a novel. The universe already existed, but even within the, the scope of the book itself, it told a cohesive story. So what are your thoughts on that style of storytelling? This is just you as a reader, obviously, because it's not common as common, but I do, I do think it's enjoyable to read. So what about you, Terry? I wouldn't want to be the editor on something like that. It sounds like it would be really fun to read, but oh my gosh, trying to trying to herd those cats, I would not want to be part of that. Um, it sounds like an interesting <laughs> technique, but it's also one that has the potential for a reader to go really badly if the stories don't mesh really well. Yeah. Um, Bujol did one with one of her yeah. Miles books, and it was three or four short stories, and she had almost a unifying story within it because it was the story was, um, if you've read the Miles Verkostikin books, well, if you haven't read them, he's he's bedridden, as one happens to do when they get blown up and stuff. 
and because it, it's a mill sci-fi book and um and the his, the intelligence operative comes in and goes okay so i need i need you to debrief me on these incidences and the short stories in the novel are the short stories of those incidences so um i think that was a time but yeah you really have to be super careful about how it works um and then, oh yeah, the founder effect. Somebody, Jamie just put it in there. Uh, the founder effect panel at LibertyCon is a great example where it's all interwoven. And I'm impressed that they did it. it, it it's very well done. But I'll let Jamie and Chris talk. Uh, yeah, resistance. I, I got to tell you, that was that's something else. I mean, just cause yeah. I, I, and it really came down to, you mentioned you wouldn't want to, Terry mentioned you wouldn't want to edit it. Yeah, Mike and Jamie Ibsen. Uh, yeah, they've they, said many times they've they said don't that, ever want to do that, that again. again. Um, and um, <laughs> I, I think the effect was, uh, I think I think collectively we pulled off something uh, pretty damn good, to be honest. Um, but um, there, well, I think this was more common back in the day. I mentioned Thieves World before. I mentioned um, Borderland. I think people used to try it more often, but it was also, you notice those anthos, it's a much smaller group of writers. That's like only like four or five writers at most. So that might be a little bit easier to do logistically. Um, than like a whole crowd of 13, 14, whatever yeah. the heck it was. Wait, are uh, you saying two veterans may have dived in head first and hit their head on the bottom of the pool while they were at it? Oh, no. Not. No. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't like that happens. <laughs> I mean, we might have gotten this. I got to tell you, I mean, we might have uh, gotten the Storm Area whiskey. 51 anthology that way. <laughs> whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. That too. So that's the thing is I think you can so, do it, but I think it's more work in the um, I think the work of editing, cutting it together, you know, se sequencing it, sequencing it alone, you know, arranging it. If you want to use a music term, I bet you that's more work than the writing. Um, so I'm there was positive. Yeah. I mean, I remember one from back in the day, one of the Shadowrun anthos when that game was the hotness and it was kind of done the same way. And it's all I could think of was, wow, this must have been hard to pull off. Because when you do it well, like I said, yeah, it comes yeah. off like a good Quentin Tarantino movie or a good Guy Ritchie movie. It all flows together, you know. And uh, if you could pull it off, it's a heck of a, it's a heck of a, a you know, a move. But um, that's a lot more work, I think, after the fact than it is just the writing. You know, at least at least what Mike had us do, you know, for writing all those vignettes, because it was to try and build glue and connective tissue. So between his stuff ours and then jessica slankers and the way he just arranged everything him and jamie to pull it off i was like wow i uh i, I would not want to do that i mean that that's th and that's th jamie ibsen not yeah <laughs> uh michael so anderley and as a reader. Uh, michael anderley did a uh, couple of anthologies called bob's bar and it had the stories were even more tightly interwoven than um, usual. It actually had the, the narrative of the short stories being interrupted by the other characters from the other short stories, giving their views on what was going on. And it was difficult to write, but I can't imagine how tough that was to edit. You know what, though? That sounds cool, though. I want to check that out now, because if you could pull that off well, that is a hell of a cool move. Yeah, um, I, I've read the the two that I mentioned, the um, 
the wormhole was four anthologies that were tied. Each one told a cohesive story throughout. So essentially four novels written by like a, a bunch of people. And I've talked to Nathan about that when he put those together. He's like, yeah, there's a reason we stopped at four. Because uh, the the return on investment just for the sheer amount of time on the production end and the writing end to make it all line up was just insane. But reading a well put together one, I think, was a lot of fun. But that's almost got to be a passion project because I imagine it'll give everybody gray hair trying trying to do that. So, um, speaking of short content, and I know you know this has come up before in Terry's podcast, but I know the uh, Amazon is about to release their Vela program, which is short stories, uh, serialized fiction, similar to their Kindle Unlimited program. Um, but it's along the veins of what's been working in the Eastern markets with some of their programs. Uh, I think Radish was, is that right, Terry? Was it Radish that was the Radish program? Radish is they another were using? site. Um, um, something Road. I can't remember Remember they then. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of sites that do serialized fiction. And I, I came on the show mainly to tell you you're wrong about Vela. So I'll just put that out front right now. Whatever you're about to say about it, you're wrong. And it's Royal Road. I, all I was going to ask was I was going to – okay. I was going to posit the question whether that that style brings a resurgence of, of more uh, widespread interest in, in short serialized and short fiction in general or or uh, whether it will be a flop for the readers uh, used to binging insufferably long series. First up, serialized fiction is not short fiction. And I know I've, I've told you that before. But it's it's unless you've actually listened to serialized fiction, it's hard to grasp. Like the old radio serials, it's serialized fiction is more of a delivery method than a a way of breaking down the increments. It's just taking a longer story and presenting it in smaller chunks to you that draw you from one piece to the next. It's still a longer story. It's not a short story. Thank you. Don't. You have, I, we can have doesn't Terry every individual segment. She agrees with me a lot. She sends me a talking so, points thing but to isn't agree with her. Oh, you figured she would do that. Um, so doesn't every individual segment, though, have to stand alone a little bit, much like no. a short story would? No, no, it does not. Um, the, the serial that I'm writing for it is in a different genre than I normally write. It's a, it's a project of love. And I started writing serialized fiction when I was learning how to write. And I wrote four novels as serialized fiction and published them uh, under a pseudonym on another site to gain experience and get feedback. And they do not have to be standalone. The key increment with serialized fiction is you can, you can be, it can only be a scene or a part of a scene. You have to have that hook at the end that says, I need to turn the page and find out what happens next. And that's one of the key aspects of serialized fiction that's even more important in serialized fiction than in novel writing because so, there's a time between your sets. So here's a question on serialized fiction. And I, I would love to get like you, John Hartness, and Alona Andrews all on a podcast talking about serialized fiction um, because I think it's really neat. But she was the first experience I had with serialized fiction on her website. She does the Innkeeper's Chronicles. And she would put up, and, and it was on her website, it was a service to the fans type thing, labor of love. And they would put up maybe about a half a chapter at a time. They tried to do it weekly. Sometimes, it, they, and they would post 
things have gotten busy. Uh, hopefully it'll be less busy and we'll get it, get it to you next week. But they were almost in this case though, they were like almost unedited or, or lightly edited. And which they did afterwards was they pulled them down after about a couple months after they finished. And they, they told fans, we're pulling it down on this date. They'd pull it down, they'd edit it all, and then they'd put it out as a book. Are you going to end up doing that with your serialized fiction when you finish yes. a storyline? Okay. I absolutely am. But the, the serial that I'm doing is what I'm going to call an endless serial. It's one of those, like the, the Russian lit RPG serials that might, I'm listening to one on Audible right now. It's in chapter 700 and the story is still going. Oh, I God. have extremely long views of what's going to happen with the character in my serial and the, the world and the plot will support a really long effort, but I'm going to have major story arcs that are going to be roughly novel length because I'm a novelist and that's how I think. And as I hit a novel, I will go ahead and prune that part out and it will come out as a novel. They've updated the Vela terms and services so that 30 days after the last episode of, of a book that you want to call out, you can do that and still leave it up as a serial. Nice. So absolutely. I'm going to do that. Okay, so we will have to potentially have a, another fireside chat on serialized fiction. I do know when I think serialized fiction, I know Joe Vasicek, and it was a question later, but he wrote the Star Wanderer series, which was a serialized set of novellas. So they were all like 25,000 words each that they would publish back when speed over size mattered with, with Amazon and Kindle Unlimited. Uh, and it, it's kind of personal for me because that I credit that with keeping me alive when, when things were at their worst after Iraq. Like that bought me another day because, well, I don't know what happened yet. Right. So for me, it's, it's kind of personal, which is why we do this. But um, so for me, I, I associate the serialized with, with a definitely contained story. Uh, but so it, it's definitely something we'll dive into deeper, I think with a, with a future episode. And we'd love I to do have you back. Add one thing. I'm sure. I, I do want to add one other thing is I do that. I've been continuing to do serialized versions of what I do novel wise with my Patreon page, the patrons on the page, they get my chapters in roughly worth first draft format as I do them. And so it's still my way of driving myself to write because I can't leave that audience hanging for me. I've got to put something there for them. Okay. Um, do you have, um, I know you haven't done a lot of serialized fiction, Jamie and Chris, is that something you want to weigh in as readers or you ready? We want to move on. You're muted. Um, no, I, I like it. I mean, you know, it's um, isn't that how Stephen King did the, the Green Mile originally? Something like that. I, I think. think so. Yeah, I think, and I know, like back in the day, Charles Dickinson, you know, Alexander Dumas used to do that too. I mean, that's part of the reason why I think the the Count of Monte Cristo was so freaking long to begin with. Um, but uh, you know, I think there's a place for it. I don't know if I'm going to get there. Um, you know, right now I like doing short stuff, especially because just given the day job, the day jobs constraints. You know, I could do shorts you know, pretty self-contained, even if it takes uh, a little longer than uh, what's been asked for. Um, but, um, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it works, especially like if you're, if you're somebody who is kind of, you know, with a day job and other obligations, then, you know, the shorts are, shorts are kind of the way to go still. Serialized? Yeah, I'd like to. I don't know about anything I've got in my cranium right now that would really lend itself to that, but uh, we'll see. Willing to give it a shot. All right. So uh, what about you, Jamie? 
Um, I have nothing to add to that conversation. All right, so we'll move on, and, and you can tell us what your favorite short story is. Oh, that's um, yeah. I guess I grew up loving the the Legend of Sleepy Hollow. That was probably my favorite story growing up. Ooh. You know. I, I was a very it. strange child. But there's nothing strange with that story. What about you, Chris? <laughs> you got a favorite? Um, I do actually. Um, uh, my favorite short work is Who Goes There? Uh, hands down. I mean, that's oh. it's just so well done that it, it, it's 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 creepy and scary. Still reading it today, even though you've seen the thing God knows how many times, right? It still gets you, and that's what I dig about it. Second favorite would probably be um, uh, The Man Whom the Tree Loved, which was an Algernon Blackwood uh, story. Really weird as shit. Like I said, the early 20th century, these dudes were weird. All right. I mean, they could get away with stuff in storytelling when nobody knew what a genre was. And it just sticks with you, man. That that, that story scared the crap out of me for like a week. Uh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, we didn't touch on horror necessarily with this but man uh horror works so well in short fiction it's it's not even funny so that could be a that could be a little springboard for a follow-on to this because i really think that's a genre that lends itself well to shorter formats i think you're right i think in part because the thing that's typically the scariest about horror is the fact that it's unexplained and in shorts you don't explain a lot <laughs> that that works do you have a favorite doc the Menace from Earth by Robert A. Heinlein. So, um, what about you, Terry? I know you don't read a lot of it. I actually oh, read Dr. very little short fiction, so I don't have a favorite. I'm a so heretic. just say something by me. It's cool. We'll, we'll move. Nothing by J.R. Hanley is my favorite work. your next short story. It should. <laughs> That could be an entire oh, anthem yeah, for story by Terry Mixon is how much I hate J.R. Hanley. Ten stories <laughs> I, about <laughs> I should write the collected works of how I'm, how many times I've killed J.R. Hanley. I'd buy it. You should. <laughs> it would be glorious. I'd buy it. So, all right. So I, I think I have a couple. So I like I really liked John Delarose. Um he wrote a good short story in the four horse universe, couple? a fistful of credits called Lost and Yeah, I have a couple short stories that I really dig. Um Lost and Found by John De La Rose was really good. It was sort of space opera at its at its most classic where, you know, it was the unknown and they were being hunted by a predator and they didn't really know what was going on. And it was sort of um, had vibes of like landing in the middle of some sort of Mayan ritual, but it was on an alien planet and you had, you know, blaster rifles and whatnot. Um, there was a short story that's not in print anymore by Chris Winder where he had a funny take about heaven as a, as a coffee shop. Full disclosure, I liked partly because he killed me in it in a hilarious way. And I won't spoil it because I understand he's going to put that back up. But I've never laughed so hard as when I read that short story, just his take on what the afterlife might look like. And then um, some weirdo uh, named Terry Mixon, you might have heard of him, wrote a story, I think it was Warfish, that was sort of taking a, a World War II uh, submarine battle and putting it in space. Um, I, I recommend that to everyone. And then unfortunately, he pulled it from print because he's not a nice guy. But that was a, a really good one. I hear it might uh, be And then I mentioned Joe Vasicek because that's excellent news because I, I like to recommend that to people. Uh, is it long enough? I don't remember how long it was that you could do a paper copy or is it too short for that? It's too short for that. It's it's really a short story. But um, I 
the person you referred me to showed an interest in in picking it up. Yeah, good, good. So, um, and then, um, like I said, the Star Wanderer series, which was the one by Joe Vasicek, which was sort of serialized novellas that uh, that I mentioned earlier. Those were some that I remember. And I, I've read so much that I'm sure there are others that I'll think about later, but that's the way of the world. Um, so speaking of short content, what about stuff you've written? What is your favorite short story that you've written, Terry? It has to be Warfish. It's the first short story that I ever wrote and it was inspired by a novel called Warfish written by a World War II submariner. And so I said, how can I take World War II submarines in the story that I loved growing up and tell it in a space setting? So I love it. Okay. What about you, Doc? Because you've got one short story published. Is that your favorite? Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> So I wrote, uh, we wrote together a short story called uh, Love Finds a Way for the Area 51. And I know nothing about fandom. So uh, I ended up bugging her so much and she had so much involvement. I'm like, man, I got to give her title credit because she she made enough changes to it. So that was one we did together for that anthology. It was a lot of fun. But surprisingly, we get enough. Uh, it was. And we get a lot of people asking when we're going to tell the rest of that story. So that's that's always a good sign for, for short content. What about you, uh, Chris? What's your favorite short story that you wrote? Um... I've got one God Spares coming out later this year that uh, it's very personal and um, it's a Christmas themed one, but it's also military and sort of urban fantasy and a little bit of sci-fi. I don't even know what the heck it is. Like, I don't think it's going to sell a single copy, but I'm, I, it, it's actually my favorite uh, thing that I've written so far. Other than that, it would be the aviator math vignette from uh, resistance, that one little piece uh, because a lot of people really seem to dig it and it was the most fun one to write. <laughs> and that one, because that is about 70% truth, that one. Like, you know, no, so no kidding, there I was, level truth. All right. Nice. So, um, I mean, hold on, Terry, hold that up for a second. I'm going to put you um, solo so people can see it. I'm gonna go check 35 cents, it's an old book. I'll have to check that out. I wonder if that's uh, available as a reprint. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised, but, but it's a great um, book. So, what about you, Jamie? What's your favorite that you've written? Because I know you've written a couple. Um, I, I think Province of Man is actually my favorite. Um, it's not an easy read. Um, it, it does deal with some uncomfortable issues, uh, especially within the military, um, but really any leadership organization. Um, and it's, I, I guess I didn't realize how dark it actually was as I was writing it. Um, but that is spoken like a vet. <laughs> I didn't realize how dark and fucked up this was until somebody looked at me weird about it. And yeah. Oh, I didn't much. even think about so, that, but yes, everyone on the panel today is a veteran. My, my okay. first feedback about yeah, it from that, Mike that when I sent it in was, Damn, that's dark. So I guess when Mike's, Mike Williamson says that... The guy that wrote Soft Casualty is telling her the story's dark. But, yeah. But you know what? That is, it is my, my first one that I've done on my own with lots of research help from Chris. Um, so I'm proud of it. I'm proud of how it turned out. 
I'll put a plug in for the one you guys coming so up for- uh, got coming up. Uh, Jr. You and Jamie, I think you guys, uh, you know, do my oh, isn't that cute? You guys do right well together, and um, I can't wait to see Mother's Love hit the the streets because it blew me away uh, the way you guys uh, pulled that off. That, so. that anthology, that anthology is with the uh, with the editor and proofreader and all that now. Um, that was a lot of fun. That was one of tied for my favorite that I've written, uh, both because we made the editing people that looked at it before we submitted it uh, cry up a little bit, and our our lack of Air Force understanding because Jamie and I both Army and, and Chris was was Air Force. We gave him the Forrest Whitaker eye about some of our Air Force terminology, and when she told me that, I was <laughs> laughing so hard it was glorious. Um, but uh, and then my other favorite was the uh, the one that I mentioned that I got the Hugo reading list for was the Casper's Widow, which was the epistolatory tale. Uh, mostly because I read the first couple books in the Four Horsemen universe and I felt like there were no stakes. Go here, shoot this, do this, get paid, you're done. And there was no consequences for the shooting, the killing, the dying. Um, I think that's uh, everybody, you know, who's reading it, if you've still read it, like it, they addressed that going forward. But at the time I wrote the story that hadn't been uh, in the plot line because uh, um, Chris Kennedy and Mark Wander are very disciplined about their writing style. So like they could tell you probably 20 books out what's coming. And so they definitely had an arc for it, but but as a reader, when you're when you're getting the the submission yep. for that, that's all you have to go on yep. is what's published. So that's 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 why I wrote that. I felt like there needed to show that you know it, it matters when bad stuff happens. So I told it from the widow's perspective. So that was that was I wouldn't say it was fun to write, but it was definitely moving. So all right, well we will move on to something happier, hopefully. Um, uh, no, we'll skip that one. We've already asked that one. Um, so is short fiction, we talked about movies a little bit. Uh, a lot of Philip K. Dick's were, were made into to movies. The Man in the High Castle uh, was the one that comes to mind. Uh, same title of the short story. But do you have a favorite conversion? Do androids uh, we'll dream, go with Terry dream first. of uh, electronic she- electric sheep? That's Blade Runner, right? Yes, Blade Runner. Okay. Hey, I got right. a what about you, reference. Woohoo! What about you, Doc? Do you have a favorite uh, um, short story that was made into a movie? Uh, I really like The Hunt for Red October, but it wasn't a short story, but it was made into a movie. Yeah, that's not, that's like the opposite of a short story. Sorry, <laughs> Tom Clancy does yeah, not do short stories. Tom story. Clancy's right. No. He, he does a Brandon Sanderson version of a short story. No, or maybe the other way around since he was first. <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure um, that there's any that Well, why do you think out. about that? A couple of my favorite short stories have got an option for movies, but nothing ever came of it. All right, fair enough. What about you, Jamie? Uh, the Mask of Zorro. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, and, and Chris? Um, I already mentioned uh, Who Goes There because that became the thing. And I've seen both uh, versions of it, you know, the one from the 50s and uh, the one John Carpenter did. And, um, you know, my dad had a bad habit of watching scary movies when I was small and not telling me what he was watching, but, you know, telling me to come <laughs> over and sit and watch with him. I'm still kind of dealing with the trauma from that. And the worst part is I never figured it out. Uh, <laughs> 
So between Alien, Alien, so much about Nightmare on Elm Street, yeah, I never figured it out. I was a dumb kid. No, no, no. My dad actually just scared me at the horror points. So I have a fear reaction that often results in laughter. To this <laughs> no, but the thing, the thing is, uh, actually, I've made reference to it a couple times in some of the stuff that I'm working on, which, like I said, is getting finished up and getting it through the ringers uh, to get out there in the world. But it, I, I put my homages in there because you just you just got it. I mean, so, yeah, that that's my favorite adaptation is who goes there into uh, the thing, especially the John Carpenter version. Fair enough. So mine was, I also like to Android's Dream, the um, the Blade Runner conversion. Uh, but the also another one by Philip K. Dick that I really dug was uh, We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, which became Arnold Schwarzenegger's Total Recall, um, which was a glorious movie. Um, and I, I definitely wanted more. And when I went looking, I was... What's that? And the second Total Recall movie, which no one should ever watch. Wait, there's a second one? It's terrible. I didn't know there was a second one. Okay. It's awful. Well, I don't mind cringe. I might have to I might have to check it out just because. It's got great music. All right. I'll, I'll um, give it that. He reads my text messages. Well, I'm surprised. Okay. Usually it's my video um, that fails. <laughs> That's because uh, you live out in the middle of nowhere and you've got like two tin cans for internet. They're putting fiber in my network and my neighborhood, so I might upgrade to fiber soon. Well, that's always a plus. Yeah, so of I'm all of your short stories that you've written, to, go ahead. Oh, I'm just making funny faces now. Oh, uh, of all of the short fiction that you've written, do you think you have one that you think would be the easiest for you to convert if it became a movie? To a movie? I'm sure that, that plenty of them could be converted to movies because I tend to write very close stories. I don't I don't write short stories that are these wide epics of lots of different things happening. So I personally think that any of them could be converted. I don't I'm not gonna speak to one paper. I think the one where Kelsey's in the cabin in the woods. Imperial retreat, yeah. Yeah, that would make an awesome killer shorts movie. Oh, I like that killer because she goes and kills the assassin. That's very, you know, that's very good. I know. I was laughing a lot. I was enjoying it. All right, we've got a little bit of an echo. Um, so, uh, Jamie and, and Chris, we asked if of all the short fiction you would uh, you've written, which do you think would would make a good movie? Um, I don't. I don't know. All problems of man would make a good movie. Um, it's probably the only one that could be made. Movie? That should be an episode of uh, Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah. That should be. What about what about you? Um, the uh, Nameless uh, Project that uh, will probably be coming out of soon uh, sometimes. It really would make a good movie. Would make a great play. Yeah. Right. Well, then we will have to have him back when that comes out to do a, a short interview about that short story, and uh, he can share it in the group. And. Um, I think for mine, I think the most like moving movie I think would be the Casper's Widow because it was such a tight focus. Uh, probably the easiest would be uh, my short story Ishtar's Rising, which was merging my experience in Iraq with sci-fi, which uh, is out. So as we wrap this up, because um, it's the last question, Terry, what are you currently working on? As far as short fiction? 
Uh, just in general, just, you know, to, we're, we're wrapping I'm, this I'm up. I'm working so, on you know, a RPG serial called Upstart Gods, and oh. I am editing book 14 in the Empire series, Gunboat Diplomacy. I love that title. So, so Doc, after your first short story, are you, are you uh, inspired Man. to write more content? Yes, yeah, it's true. You, you do need to sleep sometimes. Maybe. I hear that's good for you. Uh, what about you, Chris? What are you working on right now that you can talk about? Um, the, the, the full-length novel, actually, and um, the other short stories I've done. I am doing a, a nonfiction article, a book chapter on space warfare. That I just got to finish line and uh, turn that in. There's another uh, couple of nonfiction articles I'm working on, too. So most of the short stuff I'm going to be doing over the next year is going to be nonfiction. Um, but but uh, there's a lot in the hopper that I'm Back to you as soon as that's all done. Oh. All right. What about you, Jamie? Before your Wi-Fi dies again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm actually working with you and um about the uh was it humanity's first uh hazard on light travel? That's a fun novella. And yep, um the uh the Mad Hatter. Yep, Mad Hatter. And, and uh, uh then and then the the big space force uh, novel. That that should um, be uh, fun. I, yeah. I saw that Terry in the comments. That's not very nice. <laughs> All right, and and so I am a co. We are working on together, Jamie and I, uh, a novella probably uh, called the Mad Hatter, which is. FTL first FTL encounter, and then it's in the universe of our Space Force series, which we're we're co-writing together. Uh, and then I'm also working on a uh, military portal fantasy with James N. Ward uh, about modern striker brigade going into fantasy Egypt. Um, so as we bring this to a close, before we lose you, um, Jamie and Chris, can you tell us how the listeners can find you? Uh, yeah, we both got Amazon uh, author pages right now. That's the big thing. Um, I've got, you know, accounts on Twitch and whatnot, but there's nothing there yet because, you know, we're just getting started. So, yeah. You know, Amazon's the place right now, and then um, as uh, we get more stuff out that deserves a bigger presence, uh, you know, we'll you'll see a bit more of us. Yeah. All right, and we'll we'll link all of that that they've got in the show notes, so you can find it, dear listener or viewer. Uh, what about you, Terry? Where can they find you on the wild, wild interwebs? Besides your Chuck Tingle persona, where else can they find you? Amazon.com. That's where you can find me. All right, Terry Mixonette uh, on Amazon.com. You can find all of his books. And we will link all of it in the show notes to include his Patreon if you want early access to his content. And uh, as usual, my contacts will be in the show notes. And you can find us on the podcast. You can find us on uh, anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades anchor.fm backslash blasters tack and tack blades you can find us on twitter at sf underscore fantasy underscore show sierra foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show you can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com send the hate mail to seska at blasters and blades uh, podcast.com uh, we have a facebook group where we share all of the shenanigans and all of our guests are invited to share their upcoming content with you the listener and viewer uh, the facebook group 
Facebook group is facebook.com backslash blasters and blades podcast. You can support the show um, with a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Be sure to put in the show notes or in the comment notes, excuse me, that it's for the podcast. And I will make sure to keep Doc Seska and Nick Garber duly intoxicated. They will drink until their liver surrenders. Uh, Or you can support us on a continuing basis over at... Never surrender. That's right. Uh, you can support us on a continual basis for as little as 99 cents a month at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Bring us home, Doc. Okay. See, I'm good. I was waiting nicely. So thank you for spending some of your precious time with us, dear listeners. I hope you've enjoyed the uh, wonderful show for the absentee overworked Nick Garber. Uh, the actually here, JR. I'm Seska. This was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week. Same time, where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, pineapple on pizza, teaching JR about science and how he's wrong, and all things that go boom. That's heresy. I am not wrong, and pineapples do not belong on pizza. And that is the final word.